Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills, and I'm here today with Lincoln Blumel to talk about two things, the Council of Nicaea, is that pronounced correctly? Nicaea. Yeah. Nicaea, and a new anthology on all things about New Testament times, which he recently edited. It might seem that speaking about the Council of Nicaea is a little bit obscure because it's so far removed, but it does seem to come up in Latter-day Saint discussion time and again, maybe once every decade or so. And it's in the consciousness of lay members because we tie it to the apostasy. Now, you wrote a book chapter for this wonderful book called Standing Apart, which was published in 2014. The whole title is Standing Apart, Mormon Historical Consciousness and the Concept of Apostasy. Why is this something that you're passionate about? Well, I guess, you know, in part, you know, I study early Christianity and uh, do a lot within Christianity up until about the 4th or 5th century. We talk about Christianity. Nicaea does kind of loom large. Some things don't. And... Uh, one of the things I want to do in this chapter was to give Latter-day Saints a better understanding of what was going on at Nicaea. If we go back to Talmadge's great apostasy, and I certainly think his overall point does stand right from our perspective, but I felt that we could articulate it in a better way, and I think probably a fairer way also. Some of the times I felt that we go by very quickly and don't really put something in its proper context. And so what I want to do in this chapter is try to contextualize it talk about the important aspects of this council, its creed, and talk about it in both the way that engaged it, but also in a way where I think as Latter-day Saints, we certainly should have some misgivings about the creed that's issued, what comes out of this. But I think be able to do this in, in a better way, understanding it better. So if we were going to be in dialogue with people, right, for many Christians who hold this creed, important that we could have a better understanding of this, and it would be a more fruitful discussion. So that was really kind of the main point of why I wrote that chapter. Most Latter-day Saints may have heard of the Council of Nicaea, but they have a very superficial understanding and maybe skewed. It seems like we pinpoint that as the time where things went bad in early Christianity. So to get a better understanding of the Council of Nicaea, could you just briefly run us through the what, where, and why of the Council of Nicaea? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. I do think, you know, Nicaea to begin it is a watershed moment in ancient Christianity. It will set a new course in the Christian church, and it will actually follow it up by six other ecumenical councils. And the term ecumenical means it's kind of universal. And really what's driving this is a debate that breaks out in the city of Alexandria about seven or eight years prior to this. And one thing to be aware of with Alexandria is this is really the intellectual center in many ways of the ancient world. People from all over the ancient world will go to Alexandria to study. And so I guess in one respect, it's not that surprising that a theological uh, dispute ends up breaking out there. And the background to Nicaea begins basically, 
and we have limited sources. This is, of course, one of the challenges to this. And of course, the loser at Nicaea, a presbyter called Arius, who will be condemned, all of his writings were subsequently burned. And so one of the challenges, of course, is reconstructing his position from sources that are incredibly hostile to him. And basically what this debate starts with a dispute between Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, and the bishop Alexander. And Arius accuses Alexander, uh, so the sources go, of one time giving a sermon and basically conflating too much the nature, the roles of the father and the son. Where Arius said they were very clearly distinct beings, and in fact, Arius was adamant Christ was subordinate. And one of the issues that comes to the fore is that Christ is of a different, they use this Greek word substance or usia with the father. It's a local debate, but what's remarkable is how in a matter of a few years this spills over to other parts of the empire, to bishops in the east, and how it kind of begins really affecting the Christian church to the point where Constantine, once he defeats Licinius in October of 324 and becomes emperor of the entire Roman Empire, sets his real attention out to trying to heal a rift in the Christian church. And so he calls this council, which is then held in the summer months of A.D. 325, where bishops are primarily in attendance. Of course, other uh, churchmen uh, come. And for a period of about six to eight weeks, we'll deal with a number of issues. The biggest one, I think, is of interest to Latter-day Saints is certainly this creed, where Arius's position will largely be refuted in this creed. And one of the things that I wanted to make Latter-day Saints aware of, and, and there's certainly some problems with the Nicene Creed, certainly from Latter-day Saint theological perspective. And I think we do certainly have a, a right to have some reservations about this and some terms and what's implied by this. But one of the, the problems I had found with certain you know, LDS literature is sometimes, for example, in a couple cases, they weren't actually citing the right creed, and yet they were calling it the Nicene Creed. Churches today use an Nicene Creed, but it's actually technically not the actual Nicene Creed of 325. More accurately, we'd call this the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed that comes out in 381. I think sometimes Latter-day Saints think of the Westminster Confession and assume this is the Nicene Creed, and that is well over a thousand years later. Why do you think Latter-day Saints conflate the two? Because I've never heard of the Westminster Creed. Do you think they conflate the titles or the contents? It, it seems to me sometimes more the content. And what I tend to find sometimes in some treatments, they're very, very cursory. And, you know, if I were to give this analogy, I would kind of say it like this, that I think as Latter-day Saints, we rightfully so get very frustrated when people, I would say, kind of do a drive-by of our religion. They go by, they shoot off some shots, you know, wildly and kind of go off, and we say, that's not really a fair treatment or assessment. You know, you missed a number of things, it's inaccurate, that's not framed right. And I regrettably say in some ways, sometimes our treatments of certainly Nicaea and some of this material is, I would say, tantamount to a Latter-day Saint drive-by, where we quickly drive by, fire off some shots really recklessly, and then just kind of go on. And so I think in that sometimes it's easy for people to quickly take a few pieces of something and conflate this material. And so the hope of that article, and perhaps maybe with some more work down the road, I would like to return to this issue, of I think really fleshing this out and giving really contextualizing it, because I think there's an awful lot there 
that would resonate with Latter-day Saints on a number of levels. Like what things? Can we go through the Nicene Creed? Yeah, in this creed, you know, one of the things, and I think, you know, detractors of Mormonism, they often will say, well, Mormons are Arians, right? And this is kind of Arius who gets condemned. And that's certainly not a fair characterization. There are things in Arius' theology, and again, the challenge is trying to reconstruct his theology based on his critics. And when they um, say that, they're saying, we believe that Jesus is below Heavenly Father, right? Yeah, well, that, that's part of it, right? This subordination, that would certainly be one of them, that we do think that, you know, they're Jesus subordinate to the Father. And I, I might add here that, in fact, the overwhelming number of early Christians thought that also, up until Nicaea. That's very clear, and that's one of the things I do bring out in the article, that pre-Nicaea, this was the dominant view of the ancient Christian church. One of the things that they do bring up in terms of this is they say, well, we, because, you know, of our theology where we view Jesus, for example, you know, in a sense, as, as our brother, for them this uh, lessens his divinity. And so one of the things uh, in Arius, where later Christians will say this, is that they believe Arius is less than the divinity of Jesus because he is not of the same substance or being. And so one of the words that becomes a focal point of debate is this Greek word ousius, which means substance. In Latin, it's consubstantial. It's homoousius. But Arius made a point that Jesus was a creature, that the Father existed prior to Jesus, then Jesus was brought into existence, and therefore he was subordinate and a creature. Where coming out of Nicaea, the word they use there is that Jesus is homoousius, homo being the same, ousius being substance. Now, I think there's a number of problems with this, this term. Number one, it's not scriptural. They use a term that had been used in other contexts, and one of the things interesting I point out in the article is, in fact, our sources tell us that it's Constantine who actually insists on the use of this word, which I think is rather interesting. You have an unbaptized Christian emperor telling Christians in a very specific theological way what their theology should be. Now, probably he's talking to some Christians about this, but I think we're certainly right to have some suspicions about that. In terms of this word homoousius, it is incredibly confusing, not only for us, but I think for Christians in that day. In fact, Christian historian of this later century even points this out, that it has a wide variety of meanings. And if homoousius is meant that Christ and the Father have the same specific substance, well, I'd say absolutely we'd have to reject this. Because at a certain level, then, it's, well, they're becoming one and the same being. And it really conflates the two. However, if we were to understand this term as a generic substance, as both the Father and the Son share the same substance, but in a generic essence, or in a generic way, um, we could certainly say, yes, that would actually be a part of Latter-day Saint doctrine, as we talk about intelligence, right? You have intelligence, which is fundamental to our ontological understanding, Nice. So what's ontology? I always forget those big biblical yeah, well, terms. Well, yeah, it's, it's this kind of the state of being, you know? What, it, what is our fundamental state of being? You also said that there was a disagreement about whether the Father alone was ingenerate. What does that mean? Well, what this is, is in Nicaea here, the dominant view is that, right, the Father, right, is uncreated, right, without generation is, you know, in a sense, timeless, but the debate is, did the Son ever have a beginning? And for Arius, he says, or is imputed to have said, and I think this is probably accurate, he says, 
And a lot of even modern translations don't translate this right. They translate as there was a time when he was not, but he actually says, technically the Greek says, there was when he was not. So even a period perhaps even anterior to the whole notion of time. And the point that's there is that there's the father, and then at some point the son's brought into existence. That's what Arius uh, is arguing. And because of that, then he's subordinate. In terms of the philosophical paradigms, which is clearly informing this debate, if something is brought into existence, by definition it's mutable. It's changeable. It could come out of existence. This is kind of their paradigm they're working from. And so when Arius insists then that the father existed first and the son then at some point was brought into existence, in their paradigm they're saying, well, he can mutate, he can change, he could go out of existence. When certain early Christians think of Jesus as divine, this causes a really problem to their paradigm of understanding divinity. You know, one of the fundamental things, I don't get this article, but I think I would like to return to is we have to understand, what is God? This is called the conversation. What's informing this? And at least in that time, you know, then and there, clearly I would say, you know, Aristotelian notions are informing this, other notions. And so what they will do to counter Arius is they're going to say, um, no. You know, one of the things that come out is he was eternally generated, but by saying he's of the same substance of the Father, he's then always been there. There's no period when he was not. You know, with Latter-day Saint theology, I see these concepts still being debated in um, modern theological circles. We're still grappling with these concepts, even though there's semi-official positions on Latter-day Saint concepts of uh, the Father and the Son, the whole notion of materialism and what that means is really not set in our theology. Am I right? Or You know, I think there's, you know, as I look at this, I would say, you know, um, I think the major outlines are probably set, but of course there's an awful lot of room on the margins and shading, which I think certainly leaves room for interpretation and debate. It's interesting as we go back to Nicaea, that in the lead-up to this council, Constantine actually sends a very pointed letter to Arius and to Alexander, telling them to knock this off, and basically saying, this is such a minute philosophical point, and yet it's caused this massive you know, rift in the church. And Constantine um, is not a Christian at this he, point. He's not a Christian at this point, and you know, he brings this up, and on one sense, I think there's something there. On one sense, I think maybe Constantine doesn't, doesn't maybe realize in some sense what's at stake here. But the perception from him was this is a really, you know, kind of on the periphery. Now, for those in the debate, this is very front and center. What um, was at stake? Well, I think for, you know, the side that wins out, and, you know, the side that wins out is the Nicene side. And what's interesting is that for the next 50 years after Nicaea, there was no guarantee it was going to win out. In fact, for much of the time after Nicaea, in certain parts of the empire, it was a minority position. It wasn't until the Emperor Theodosius where... I would argue at the point of a sword in some cases, this creed is enforced. But I think they would see it at stake from their paradigm, is they would, would see Arius challenging the divinity of Jesus, that in some way that's undercutting us, in terms of their notions that are developing, where it's very clear that earlier generations of Christians could see things, I would say, in a similar lens as Arius in certain respects, and this was considered normative theology or Christology at the time. So for me, it's interesting as you do see a genuine change going on in Nicaea that will certainly affect later 
understandings of Christ and kind of, I think, sets the church in a certain trajectory for subsequent centuries. How does this creed relate to the concept of the Trinity without body parts or passions? Well, the Nicene Creed never mentions the Trinity. In fact, the first Christian creed that mentions this is the creed called the Athanasian Creed, which, although it has this name, this famous 4th century Bishop Athanasius clearly did not write this creed. But it does here put the church on a trajectory toward this in terms of this idea of homoousius, where they are substance, right? And of course, even some people are then debating what this oneness means, but certainly get to this Trinitarian notion, it's certainly moving in that direction with the use of this term. And so although it's not there yet, right, they're not using this, you can then see how in a subsequent century we'll start using this terminology. And so again, this I kind of talk about this as a watershed moment, is it sets the path. One thing that the Nicaea is, for me, it's like dominoes. You push the first domino, well, then all of them have to fall. And there's a number of things that we're going to see happening in the aftermath of this. One of them that I think is very interesting is they do look at passages in a different light in the New Testament post-Nicaea. And it's something they're going to reinterpret them differently. And one that's really interesting that I think that Latter-day Saints would find very interesting would be that coming out of Nicaea at a certain level, and this is one of the big problems I see from Latter-day Saint perspective, or I would say any perspective from just the original Nicene Creed, is at a certain level, I would argue, it denies the fundamental humanity of Christ. Where, yes, Christ comes to earth, but I think it's pretty clear he comes to earth, but he can't really suffer. He doesn't really have a mortal existence. And so one of the problems of this, for example, I think of Nicaea, and of course later Christians will try to address this, but coming out of Nicaea anyway, is, you know, you have this divine being, but there's no way he could be tempted. And so the temptations now, this is impossible, Christ couldn't be tempted. For us, temptations, it can't be a temptation unless somebody could actually be tempted. And in fact, one of the things that we know is debated, and I see that's brought up, is Arius said that in fact Christ could be tempted, he could have fallen, but he didn't. And the Nicene side said this is utterly ridiculous. You're saying that a divinity could be tempted. And I think for Latter-day Saints, um, we would say yes, that in fact, as we look at the condescension, Christ does become mortal, could be tempted. And for us, I think the beauty of this is that although he could be, he actually never succumbed to it, which for us, and I think it's beautiful at our understanding of Christ is that he's a real example. I would say coming out of Nicaea, the Nicene Christ at a certain level is not a very good example. He doesn't really know what it's like to be human. It's God comes down, but never really partakes in the human experience. And so then passages in the New Testament take on this new light. In fact, I'll just give one example that's a really interesting one. I think all Latter-day Saints are very familiar with Luke 22, 43 to 44 in the Gethsemane narrative, where Christ being in Gethsemane is in agony and he's sweating blood. Well, in the aftermath of Nicaea, people are reading this passage and say, something weird is going on here. How can a divinity be suffering like this? After all, it presupposes at a certain level divinities are impassable. Why is an angel there comforting a divinity? And so what they actually do is they actually remove this passage from the scriptures. And what's really interesting is this actually I've argued elsewhere in another article, impacts modern translations, 
where in a number of modern translations, Luke 22, 43 to 44, in some is altogether omitted, but in others actually put in brackets saying, well, this passage is dubious. Well, my argument is dubious because, in fact, Orthodox Christians, i.e. those who follow the Nicene Creed, went about removing this after the Council of Nicaea, and we have a smoking gun. We have a bishop, Epiphanius, from the 4th century, who says as much and says they shouldn't have done this. But that's, I think, a really fascinating thing, saying that in some ways, Orthodox are corrupting scriptures. We have a very clear example as a direct result of the Creed. And for Latter-day Saints, we look at Gethsemane. Um, you remove this one passage from the New Testament, there's nothing else. The Creed is rather short. Do you mind reading it to us and then going through some of its interpretation? Yeah, I'd be happy to do this. This is a translation that I, that I gave uh, from the Greek text. Quote, We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation came down and became incarnate becoming human, suffered and rose again on the third day, and ascended into the heavens, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. But those who say, there was when he was not, and before he was born he was not, and that he was made of things that were not, or assert the Son of God is of a different essence or substance from the Father, or that he is a creature, or subject to change or alteration, these the Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes. So what does that mean? With what parts do you think Latter-day Saint doctrine agrees with what you read or disagrees? Well, I think at a surface reading, you, you can kind of divide this creed into four parts, right? The first part is just, we believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. I think at a surface reading, we'd have a very hard time disagreeing with that. Now, there might be some loaded, you know, implications and assumptions underneath that, but I, I really don't think there's a big problem there. Section three, we believe in the Holy Spirit. I think, again, we'd have a hard time disagreeing with that. Now, there might be some underlying assumptions uh, there. For me, where the problems would come in are in section two and four, where it talks about Christ. And the problem, I think, that comes in section two is I think there's a number of things, right? The you know, Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten. I think all these terms are biblical terms. We would say, yeah, um, at surface reading, there's no problem. I do think, right, where we get down to the phrase, where it does say, of one substance with the Father, this Greek word homoousios, or in Latin, consubstantial, does cause some problems. And, and some Latter-day Saint interpreters have kind of jumped on that and focused on that. And I think there are some there. But as I mentioned previously, this doesn't have to be a problem that can't be, you know, overcome in terms of how you look at substance, whether you're talking about generic or specific substance. For me, the biggest problem is in the anathema, I'm anathema at the end, where they're condemning Arius, and the biggest problem is where it makes a point that's not subject to change or alteration. Because for me, one of the things fundamental to our theology, and I would dare say New Testament theology, is the condescension, that Jesus really becomes mortal. And with mortality, he lives as a mortal, right? He is passable, can suffer. Um, as Latter-day Saints, certainly we would say he is mutable, that he is subject to change. In fact, even in 
Luke, for example, which we do know does become a point of debate, it's Luke 2.52. It says Jesus increased in wisdom and in knowledge, um, but with God and man. Well, there is progress. After Nicaea, they don't like reading that because they're saying, well, divinity can't progress. But as Latter-day Saints, we see in mortality condescension, yes, that Jesus progresses, albeit at a different level, as we know from DNC 93, but that's actually fundamental to human experience. Um, he can suffer. And again, he does this because he can really relate. He really knows what it's like to be human. The Nicene Jesus never becomes human. And so at a certain level, it fundamentally denies the condescension. And again, Christians of later centuries and later councils will eventually grapple with it in ways I don't think are accurate. So they will get to this, but coming out of Nicaea, I think this is the big problem. I think one of the criticisms from Latter-day Saints in the past has been something that has nothing to do with the contents of the creed that came out of the council. And it has to do with the fact that a bunch of theologians would get together and vote on what doctrine is. Do you agree with me? Well, you know, I think you know, there is some, you know, uh, resentment from that. I, I think there, you know, there's a very actually provocative style book that came out a few years ago called Voting on God. And I think at a certain level, there is some truth to that, where we might look back with a little bit of irony where people vote on God, okay, this is God. And certainly here with Nicaea, where you have an emperor figuring so prominently, who's unbaptized, unchurched, we could say, who's calling some shots on this, and the one key word that really becomes a lightning rod, he insists this is included. I think we can rightfully look at this, and I think at times we might have maybe over, you know, overblown this a little bit, but there's certainly, I think, a problematic element to this that's not fair to be critical and suspicious of uh, some of this. And again, it's a bit ironic, right, because you do have a traditional Christianity where we people, to a certain extent, will vote, and well, this is God. We voted on him, and this is, this is who he is, and this is who Christ is. And so I don't think it's totally out of place, although I think at times we, I think we need more sensitive and more informed in some more criticism in this regard. Oh, I believe so as well, because I think we get in our mind this Reformation-era view of the bishops who attended this conference, which is very anachronistic. These bishops were just trying to figure out the doctrine. They didn't really have any financial gain to it, or they weren't corrupt. They had earnest intentions in what they were doing. Would you agree, having studied it more? You know, from the sources we get, you know, I do think that, you know, in this, people go there and they want to get it right. You know, I don't think they're going there saying, how can we totally mess things up? Again, if I were to go back to that one letter that Constantine sent to Arius and Alexander, what's interesting to me is for Constantine, when you read the letter carefully, he's very concerned about unity. And this is, I think, this is kind of an imperial perspective, right? There's a large number of Christians in the empire, and if they're in turmoil uh, and split, this isn't good for the empire. And in this letter, where he warns them to be reconciled, it's very clear in this letter that Constantine cares more about unity than perhaps getting it right. And I don't mean that Constantine wants to get it wrong, but I think when you read this letter, the, the, the council, I think it's fair to say that what is most important is that we all agree. And let's hope we get it right. I, I think they'd say this, but... I think there's a problem there where it's then very easily to say, okay, this is what's most important to agree, and maybe it's not right, but we all agree. And I, I don't want to say that some bishops going in there thinking, well, we think it's wrong, but we all agree, but I think from an imperial perspective, 
what is first and foremost is unity. And for him who's already viewing this as kind of these tangential issues, well, this is not a big deal, these kind of, for him, this is, you know, out in the periphery, let's just be unified. And so for Constantine, what will unify? Well, then this is going to work. And so I think there's a real danger there in that. Well, true, but from his position, being a non-believer, unity is not a bad goal as well. Yeah, you know, I certainly say, you know, unity is not a, certainly not a bad goal. And, you know, when I talk about non-believer, I would say certainly at this point, Constantine has, you know, taken steps in favor of Christianity. You know, you know there's all kinds of debates. When does he, you know, really turn toward Christianity, although he's baptized at the end of his um, life? And so I can't fault that, but I think we'd say from theologically, this is a bit of a dangerous thing, Right. I want to insist on unity above else when we're here working out a creed, right? A creed is a confession about the Father and the Son. And so coming into this, I think he's concerned about that. I do think, right, that bishops want to get this right, but, but I think there is a bit of, um, for me, a bit of a troublesome dynamic here between some of that. Maybe partisanship or something like that. Oh, there'll certainly be some partisanship there. And again, one of our primary sources coming out of this, it's a bishop from Caesarea called Eusebius, he writes some letters. If you read these letters carefully, on one level, I think he has some genuine misgivings about the creed and what went on. On the other hand, you now have an emperor who's now patronizing the Christian church and has brought an end to persecution. So he's kind of in a hard spot here. And so I don't think he's alone in, in some of this coming out of this. That's great. Before we leave the topic, I want to bring up one more point. Joseph Smith talked about his dislike for creeds. And I think we conflate what he meant in his statement with the Nicene Creed. And you spoke to this in your chapter. Do you want to talk about what your conclusion was? You know, with the creeds, I, I think certainly in one of the, the dominant creeds, right, the Westminster Confession, I think that is much more known, right, in 19th century uh, U.S. than certainly uh, the Nicene Creed at the time. You know, I think he is critical of those. I, I think these go in the Nicene, we're going to see kind of one built upon another, upon another. You know, I, I am convinced that, you know, in the first vision we do have, right, where you have the quote from Christ talking about, you know, their creeds are an abomination, unquote. We require a lot of time to try to unpack what I think is going on here. I think at a certain level, what I would say here is that if creeds are saying things that are inaccurate about divinity, then yes, I think they would be, you know, an abomination, or it's a very strong word here in order to unpack this. But that's where I see this kind of coming from, and certainly with how it kind of gets built up. And if I were to maybe conclude with this, with Nicaea, I would see it kind of, you know, causing Christianity to kind of, you know, move in a certain direction. And for me, one of the things here, here's kind of the first move, and it's with each, each subsequent creed, you have another move, another move, another move. And, and for me, it becomes something, you give it, you know, 1,300 years, and for me, it becomes something very different now, where I think there are some very significant problems. But for me, it's kind of this first step. Amazing. Thank you for your help clearing up our understanding of the Nicene Creed. Let's go to this incredible tome that you edited. I got this in my mail, and I said, ay, ay, ay. It's two inches thick, hardbound, and true confessions to my listeners. This is the first time I have not read the book of an interviewee from cover to cover. There's a lot here. I've read parts, but not the whole thing yet. Tell us about this amazing project. Well, it was uh, conceived about three and a half years ago. 
one of the things here is maybe a bit of you know a, a frustration at time is how can you find kind of a good you know somewhat comprehensive source on the new testament you know there's things scattered here and there and so what i determined to do and ideally i want it to be ready kind of for the new as we hit the curriculum uh, for the new testament uh, starting in 2019 is i began kind of just diagramming what i would like in kind of an introduction to a new testament for latter day saints and chapters and began working on this and quickly realized this was not going to be, you know, uh, 100 or 200 pages, but probably even closer to 1,000 pages, and even then feeling that this probably wasn't going to be adequate, of what would be really useful to kind of help Latter-day Saints look at different parts of the New Testament. Because the New Testament, right, it's a collection of 27 books that are written at different times by different authors, different genres, and at times can be, at times, you know, maybe easier to read, but at times quite difficult. And so I wanted to produce something and, and draw upon, you know, other Latter-day Saints scholars, kind of bring to their cohesive volume that would help kind of fill a gap a little bit, and that people could use this in the study of the New Testament that wasn't just totally cursory. Um, well, here's, you know, a paragraph on the Gospel of Matthew or a Gospel of John that would give them a little bit more um, on translation. Your book is not necessarily about the theology you find in the New Testament. The subtitle is History, Culture, and Society, which is something that often in our short hour Sunday school meetings we don't touch on at all. Why do you think it's so important to know the history, culture, and society in order to understand the words on the page and what they mean? Well, I might say, right, over half of our New Testament is letters. In fact, most is a collection of letters. And so in some sense, we're actually reading somebody else's mail. And so we're actually intruding on a conversation. And certainly in Paul's letters, there's a lot of implicit information that's not made explicit. And so sometimes I, I think that if we can kind of try to figure out a little bit of the context, what's implied, that will open up, you know, letters, for example, to us. We might see new insights be inspired in ways that if we don't have that, those kind of lenses, we're going to miss some of that. You know, one of the things we try and do, and again, there's all kinds of chapters, right? We have a chapter on clothing and dress in the New Testament. We have a chapter on plants. And um, that may seem superficial, but it's so important to know what they wore because it comes up in the scriptures, in the parables, and you can't understand that if you don't know what they're referring to. Yeah, so you know, Jesus uses kind of imagery because I think his audience, right, we're dealing, at least in you know, the Gospels, kind of this agrarian world. So he uses, you know, agrarian, you know, viticultural imagery, fishing imagery. And so that's just going to say, here are all the seeds, here are the plants. And sometimes I think these will bring some insights that people might not otherwise, uh, you know, have considered. You know, we have chapters on Greek and Roman philosophy. This is, does become a big issue in certain letters of Paul. It kind of gives some background you know, what's at stake in some of these arguments? Why are people thinking this? Well, here's kind of the the ancient paradigm as it relates to bodily resurrection afterlife. This is what Paul's combating. And so when you see some of that, you know, one of the things for me is I see some of the challenges and I kind of look at, well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yes, our century, we're, we're different in some ways, but in fact, at a certain level that we have some fundamental similarities. And I'm like, I think people can now see things and say, wow, yes, this letter is 2,000 years old, but it can really speak to me. And there's some really... For all the timely things, there's, there's some really important timeless messages, and I, I hope this book can then enable readers to see these and discern them on their own in their personal study. 43 chapters. How did you find all the authors? Well, 
really had to look far and wide, probably call in a number of favors to people, but just began working and saying, okay, well, who might be able to do these things? You know, early on, I thought maybe I ought to write this book, and then I became really clear that I'd be doing nothing else for the next three and a half years. And so look for people that had done, you know, things in those areas, tried to include both BYU, non-BYU faculty. I didn't just restrict, the, uh, restrict this to people who had PhDs. There were, you know, some doctoral students. There were some people that had master's students. I certainly wanted people to have in some sense an established track record of publishing or some academic training that would certainly help them in the writing of their chapter. And so it required that. But overall, I was really pleased. Like I say, I've read 43 chapters, every chapter dozens and dozens of times. And so uh, I think maybe my hand is kind of an imprint on certain chapters more than others. But overall, I was pleased with the contributions and really feel that as people look at this book, and it may sound intimidating, but I didn't write this book to think I want to sit down and read it cover to cover. I kind of look at this a bit more as a handbook. People are going to Gospel Doctrine, oh, reading Paul's letters. Oh, there's two chapters on Paul here. Let's go look at those. We're reading John's letters. Oh, there's a chapter over here on the general epistles. Oh, we're doing you know, something on Paul, or we're doing something on history. Oh, there's a chapter over here and here that might inform that. So for me, I would hope people would kind of you know, pick and choose what they'd want to read and maybe read what's appropriate for their study. And maybe keep it on their shelf uh, lifelong. Yeah. So in, in four years, when we're studying systematically the New Testament again, pull it down again and maybe see what other chapters catch their interest. Yeah, I hope that's the case. And one of the things I want to do here is, is I do think it's enduring in the sense that one of the things I told the authors I wanted them to do is I said, I really want you to focus on sources. In scholarship, right, theories come and go, and it's, but the main sources we have are unlikely to, going to change. And so I want people to really get in the sources, cite ancient sources, which I think will give this book a long shelf life where they can come back. Here's what we have. And so, yeah, this is what would be my hope, that people would kind of return to this, or as they're studying, oh, there's a chapter here, I just want to go and see what it says there, and help them understand maybe a certain passage, or at least shed some new light on that. But it's not a commentary, we don't go through verse by verse, but more thematically deal with issues that arise in the New Testament. That's wonderful. Thank you for all your hard work. As an editor myself, I looked at that and I just was amazed. I don't know how you could work with so many people on so many different chapters. I know how much work went into this. I appreciate it. I appreciate you sharing your time with us today as well. Thank you, Lincoln. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.